0: I'm Kristen Marshand, and this is The Opiongo Line, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the latest and greatest from our unique culture here in the Upper Madawaska and Opiango River Valleys. Today, we're joined by the host of The Local, Sean Conway, as he delves into the local history of all things Irish as he chats with Joanne Olson, Mark Wormke, and Karen Yakabuski. I know, I know, those names don't sound Irish, but trust me, These folks are all Irish, through and through. Just you wait. You'll see. Well, that is, inasmuch as things never really do appear to be what they sometimes seem to be here around Barry's Bay. For instance, take a close listen to how they talk about how they all used to celebrate St. Patrick's Day back in the 1950s and 60s. Apparently, the good folks back then weren't too particular if you were Irish or not when it came to taking part in the annual festivities of St. Patrick's Day, be it a concert, play, tea, or whatever malarkey or shenanigans was planned for March 17th each year. So long as you wanted to be Irish for that day, that was all that really mattered. And if you did that, well, that seems to be enough to be included in those celebrations. So much so, the local Irish even had their own song to encourage that sort of behaviour. Here's Mark Wormkey with a verse or two of it, singing it the way his dear old mom, Gwen Billings, used to sing it, beginning back in the 1930s and 40s, and right up into the 21st century.
1: All right, well, this is a piece of sheet music that was in my mother's files, and it's it's the song is called Let us All Be Irish Tonight, the words and music by W.J. McKenna. And in my mother's handwriting, you can see March 17th, 1942. Now, the story behind this is she heard it on the radio, and she said, I need to have that music for the next concert. And so she rode off to New York and tracked it down and had the the sheet music sent to her. And uh, she liked the idea because it talks about all these different ethnic groups celebrating St. Patrick's Day. So I'll see if I can give it a shot here. There's a few little uh, changes that she made just to suit the community. So, let's see. Michael McCarty once gave a great party on St. Patrick's Night in his mansion so fine. His friends and relations received invitations. They formed quite a crowd when they sat down to dine. Beside all the Irish in town, my but I wish, I knew all the names of the folks gathered there. Some Polish and Hebrews, Italians and Swedes too. All nations attended McCarthy's affair. They listened with glee to their host. When McCarthy said, boys, here's a toast. Let yous all be Irish tonight. Let yous all be Irish tonight. You French, Scots and Polish, Chinese and Jews. Just act like McKenna's, O'Shea's and McHugh's. And I'll shake yous all by the hand. As if you come from Ireland. Forget all your troubles, your cares and your woes. Imagine you're one of the Macs and the O's. Do everything Irish, but don't start to fight. Let us all be Irish tonight.
0: Let us all be Irish tonight. Now, doesn't that sound like fun, if not inclusive? So let's get to it, our annual tip of the hat to the Valley Irish and how they uniquely celebrate their heritage, especially in Barry's Bay on St. Patrick's Day. Here's Sean Conway with Joanne Olsen. Mark Wormke, and Karen Jakubowski, and they are all more than just Irish for the day. Good afternoon. I'm delighted
2: to be here today with three dear friends, all of us having grown up in Barry's Bay in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, I guess would be the point at which most of us were leaving town to uh, go away to school. Uh, one of our guests, Mark Wormke, probably left a little bit later than that. Uh, he smiles uh, approvingly when I say that. And our topic today is um, remembering St. Patrick's Day in Barry's Bay, back particularly in those years, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and in Mark's case, the 1980s. My guests are Karen Yakubosky, Joanne Olson, and Mark Wormke. My name is Sean Conway. And my first question for the table this afternoon is, what brings you by virtue of your growing up and your family experience to St. Patrick's Day and the celebrations of the same here decades ago? I'd like to begin with, with Karen Yakubosky answers answering that question.
3: Karen? Well, my pleasure. Uh, my mother was a Conway, of course, my father Yakubosky. So we were part of that unique dichotomy here in Barry's Bay of the founding Irish and Polish communities so um, I had the wonderful experience of course of all the Conway Irish background and there was certainly no way that St. Patty's Day would not be celebrated uh, in various forms with great joy
4: and lots of fun.
2: Joanne what's your connection to St. Patrick's Day?
4: My maiden name is Billings. My mother was Bernice O'Grady. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was Tessie Koslow. And my paternal grandmother was Agatha Kitts. So I think I'm basically Irish through and through. And uh, despite my married name, Olsen, which is Norwegian, um, we celebrate, I remember celebrating St. Patrick's Day as far back as I'm actually able to remember. So in various forms, which we can discuss later. Thank you very much for that.
1: Mark Wormke? Well, Wormke is a German surname, uh, but I'm only half German. My mother was a Billings, uh, so I'm a first cousin to Joanne. And uh, she, my mother was a parishioner of St. Lawrence O'Toole, uh, so she was always involved with whatever uh, events were going on from an early age, uh, but also her family would have... Uh, holiday celebrations, St. Patrick's celebrations at the hotel uh, in her youth. And so I grew up on many stories about those uh, goings-on back in her youth. And uh, I participated a bit myself in the parish events.
2: Well, thank you very much for that. I should just uh, answer my own question. As I say, my last name is is Conway. My mother was uh, Teresita Murray, and so the Murrays and the Conways were long-time residents and remain residents here in Barry's Bay and um, I spent uh, the first 18 years of my life in this community had a wonderful time and like I think most people here church was a big part of uh, of uh, community life certainly our family life and uh, I was a, a parishioner of Saint Lawrence O'Toole from the time I was able to go to church until I left for university And when I think about St. Patrick's Day, I think about the St. Patrick's Day concerts, which happily, in an ecumenical way, were in my early years celebrated at uh, St. Hedrick's Church, the, quote, Polish church here in Barry's Bay. But enough of of me, Karen, and then to Joanne and, and Mark. I want you now to cast yourself back to your earliest memories of St. Patrick's Day or and or Saint Patrick's Day related events or circumstances.
3: I guess you know there was always you know the roll up to it, and that would be certainly spearheaded by the Catholic Women's League, who would prepare uh, shamrocks, you know of all shape well they'd all have the shamrock shape but uh, you know boxes and bags of them which would be sold for of course fundraising and in association with that there would be the wonderful St. Paddy's Day Tea which uh, as a young girl I had the privilege of being a server so needless to say they would not permit us to serve the tea because that is a real opportunity for an accident Mm -hmm. but we did get to serve all the desserts and oh my goodness we certainly ate a few off the plate as we passed them around so we always of course had that but as you mentioned the concerts were something else because they were a venue of excitement and local talent, and remarkably, we had a lot of talent around.
2: Well, you've certainly taken us to two really important uh, parts of the uh, highlights, really, of the St. Patrick's Day uh, week, and that would be, as you mentioned, the St. Patrick's Day Tea, hosted by the Catholic Women's League at St. Lawrence O'Toole, and uh um, that event that brought Broadway to Barry's Bay, the St. Patty's uh, um, play. But just a question, Karen, before I move on to, uh, to Joanne, you would have grown up in a household where I'm sure your mother was the convener on probably more than one occasion for that tea, which oh, was really probably. quite a logistical operation.
3: Yes, but I, you know, she was such an efficient woman. Managing the large family, you know, who may not know, by when I went back in the 60s, there were already eight, nine children, and uh, we had our business and the home. And so, stuffing in a little more time for baking and calling people up to organize them and ensure everything was done, it, it just, just, it it wasn't anything that seemed to rock her boat you know she just uh moved on something to do and yes absolutely but being a convener certainly gave us girls the inroad to be servers you know so that was our big happiness most in, most
4: assuredly
2: Joanne uh your first memories uh of anything to do with St Patrick's Day
4: well i care and i, I... I certainly remember the preparations for the tea that was hosted by the Catholic Women's League. My grandmother, Tessie O'Grady, was the president of the Catholic Women's League for what seemed like forever to me. Um, So we would be busy at our house cutting out those felt shamrocks and decorating them that were going to be sold. I do have one memory of the St. Patrick's Tea when it was actually still held in the basement of the old high school in Barry's Bay, um, which where the beer store is now located. And uh, Loretta Murray collected dolls. And my great-aunt Stacia Denigan, because she never had children, she gave me, I had an amazing collection of dolls. Now, these were not like Barbie dolls, but full life-size dolls. And Loretta collected those dolls and a few of her own daughters as well. And she dressed them all. She created costumes and created um, McNamara's band. And I still have a picture of me in 1963 sitting in front of McNamara's band. And kind of an interesting aside to those dolls. But when the tea was over, they actually shipped those to a community way in the north to children. And I had received multiple letters from those kids um, thanking us for those dolls so that's one memory I have of the tea. I actually don't have any memories of serving at that tea, of those teas. Um, and in other preparations were we danced. So my grandfather, Joe O'Grady, and my mom, Bernice, and my brother, Basil, and I danced at these concerts. Um, the concerts were held all over. So definitely I remember dancing at St. Hedrick's Parish. I remember traveling in snowstorms to Brudenell to Killaloo as well as our own uh, performances at uh, once the hall was built at St. Lawrence's so we would start practicing for those performances in our basement of our house Uh, my grandpa had a sheet of plywood and we would put our taps on and that's where we had to practice because if we practiced on the main floor everything would shake in the house And uh, Dougal McIsaac, who played the fiddle, would come to the house and play for us. And when he wasn't available, we played records and we learned steps from our grandpa and from our mom. And my brother Basil and I would fight through most of those practices because he was always so much better than I.
2: Was that the nature of the conflict? (laughs) Who was better than whom? Of course. (laughs) Mark, your first memories... We should tell the audience that uh, while your roots were very deep in the Barrys Bay area, that you, your growing up was uh, kind of unusual because that you uh, well, let you tell the story. Yes,
1: yeah, so well, my parents lived at uh, Lake Traverse uh, Railroad Station in Algonquin Park, uh, but I know for a fact that my mother performed in many concerts during the time they lived away, so she would come back, in the years between. 1951 and 1971, she'd make sure that she was back in Barry's Bay for St. Patrick's Day.
2: And just just for our audience that's not familiar with the geography of Algonquin Park, where exactly is Lake Travers, say, relative to Pembroke, which is the county seat here in Renfrew County?
1: Lake Travers would be about a 45-minute drive um, west of Pembroke, and it was on the the transcontinental CNR line that ran between Pembroke and and North Bay. So it would be about halfway through the northeast corner of the park.
2: You mentioned your mother. Mm -hmm. one of my first and most vivid memories was your mother around St. Patrick's day. In fact, the Billings clan seemed to be everywhere. Um, very, very engaged. Uh, and of course, with the, with the pedigree that the Billings clan has here connected and. Well, i won't repeat it all it's not a surprise but uh so given your mother's involvement uh again first memories of saint patrick's day
1: well we celebrated at home you know in the home with music she was a piano player and she would sing so we would sing irish songs at home uh, but my memories of saint patrick's day in barry's bay go back to probably around 1974 or 1975 or 76 I was in a few concerts at that time. Um, my mother and Ethel Smith would organize a group of students from the school to sing. My mother would also be involved in rehearsals with people like Margaret Murray and Ethel Smith and, and some others who would be singing, uh, doing solos um, at the concert, and also with some fiddlers uh, because she would chord for some of the step dancing and things like that. Um, The concerts themselves, I don't remember much about them. We'd perform, and then I remember hanging around at the back of the hall and watching the play. And uh, so I do remember Billy Gillette and Angela May in plays, and I think Joan Kitts, a cousin of ours, was the prompter often. Um, And I remember also, and we should mention this family, uh, Father Green introducing an act and saying, you know, Hollywood has the Partridge family, but Barry's Bay has the Kelly family. And so they always took roles, um, Paul or Michael or Darcy or Sean later on. Uh, Ethelwyn sang sometimes. So they were always involved in the concerts as well.
2: Well, I should just say that uh, one of my most
1: vivid memories involves something that Karen introduced, and that
2: was the, uh, the felt shamrocks. Um, My mother would have come back from the um, CWL, St. Patrick's Day Tea, which I have to say to this listening audience, was quite the social event. I really never went there, obviously, until I was in politics. I just remember the first time, which would have been probably about 1976 or 77, 78, that I went to the um, St. Patrick's Day Tea. I have to be honest with you, uh, my father, who had a bit of a sardonic wit, would be a little dubious of men that showed up at the St. Patrick's Day Tea. He was really only kidding, but uh, I know my mother, I'm sure on occasion, tried to get him to do something, and as long as he didn't have to go, he would be very, very supportive. But I remember my mother coming back with a uh, mittful of shamrocks, and she was in her own way... Quite a quiet person, but I remember distinctly the week of St. Patrick's Day. Out came the shamrocks, and and her family consisted of six boys and one girl. Well, girls of course are expected to festoon themselves with all manner of regalia. Boys, at least in my time, and Joanne's brother uh, Basil was a very good friend of mine. We just cared about hockey sticks and uh, you know things of that kind my mother would uh would uh, make sure that we did not leave for school or certainly not for church that week without having a shamrock proudly uh fastened to our to our lapel i often think of that now because she just made that very clear that that was part of uh one civic duty almost Uh, that that I, i i think of it often now because uh and the other thing I think about in this in this community, where, whereas Karen, I think you made this point that uh, the largest single ethnic community here was Polish. Um, but whether you were Polish or German or Irish or English or Welsh or whatever, everybody seemed to be sort of uh, into the swing of things. You would go into the local merchants, not just Jakobowski Hardware, but Stedman's and Paul Besky's store and whatever, and there'd be some, Recognition that this was the week for the uh, for the Irishman. Um, so let's just move on into because uh, again, Joanne, you've raised the subject about um, the the week, and particularly because I didn't go to those teas very often as a as a young person, but uh, you were there as a well as a participant at the at the Irish play. But but it was this whole business, which was quite important, which was the 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 music the the song and the dance uh, did you did you say that you were you ever part of the um, the tea as did you dance for the tea
4: no no I uh, I never danced for the tea I'm not quite sure when we stopped dancing as a foursome to be honest um, I remember turning the pages for my aunt Gwen who played the piano at the tea but uh, we didn't perform, we didn't dance at the tea for some reason, but we certainly danced at the concerts for sure. So,
2: so then let's get to, I think, the one thing that everybody would remember, and you've all talked about it the play, the St. Paddy's Day play. Um, you know, St. Patrick's Day, the 17th of March, winter is finally ending. Um, I think it was you, Karen, or Joanne mentioned that. Be- The Barry's Bay Gang were not only doing a play, but Killaloo was doing a play, Madawaska might be doing a play, Whitney, Eganville. One of the memories I have is that there was a kind of a movable feast because the, I think there were occasions when the Barry's Bay group, when they performed their three night stand in Barry's Bay, would go to Eganville or Killaloo, and the Killaloo or Eganville or Whitney crowd would come to, play would come to Barry's Bay. Let's just talk about that play because someone here mentioned a couple of names, and I remember it very distinctly. I was an altar boy, and Father J. K. O'Brien, um, parish priest at St. Lawrence, is probably I should know the dates probably about 1963 through till 1980 or thereabouts. Um, and certainly if you were an altar boy and I was an altar boy, well, one of your, well, you had jobs at the play and one of the jobs of my late and very good friend, late first cousin, Larry Reynolds, and I would have the job of doing the curtains. And it was funny when you were just a kid and you were, um, right there in the center of the action. Um, and I can remember Father O'Brien around and about, I vividly remember Joan Kitts, uh, a marvelous uh, prompter, and there were occasions, how shall I say this delicately, where Joan really had to be full of voice uh, because of what was going on, in, on on the stage in front of her because she'd be just tucked behind the puller of the drapes, which I would be one of, or doing. But memories of, of those plays, uh, Karen, you're the senior member of this conversation, so. What, what kind of memories do you have? And let me maybe try to inspire your memory. I think one of those plays, Your Family Dog, that beautiful Siberian husky, Tippi, had some engagement, had some non-speaking role on the stage. And I remember my friends, Larry and I, and I'm sure a couple of others, we were gathered towards the front of the audience under pain of death, and we were trying to to induced tippy off the stage and down with the rest of us this very vivid memory of tippy kind of caught between two loyalties should i stay or should i jump out and and see my friends so um, with that maybe it's just a bit of a stimulus any of those kind of memories from plays and well, did you participate in any of those plays
3: yes yes i did um but yeah the play was the thing you know while you know, all of the other entertainment was absolutely necessary because, of course, the scenes had to be changed. And in the meantime, you know, you had your music, you had the dancing, uh, perhaps you had even a choir, you know, uh, singing Irish songs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you're Right the whole town was like up and ready and involved irish polish it it, it didn't matter at all because it was really a fun time. The plays themselves, honestly, were always very intriguing, very interesting. Sometimes they were a mystery. Sometimes they were a love story. I was in one with Billy Gillette, Peg of My Heart. And I probably was, I don't know, maybe 13 or 14. And you know, when you're a young girl of that age and and you're talking romance, you know, like God, I was like, I think we had to even kiss, you know, and that was like, how are we going to make this happen, you know? But in any event, we all, it was so much fun. And... um,
2: Would I be right in saying that Billy Gillette was the leading man in your time and mine?
3: Oh, in most, in most, for sure. You know, Billy was a natural. He was a natural and uh but you would be surprised like you talked about father o'brien brian being involved with the priests were often the directors producers you know they were the ones chose the play and uh you know so yes they were at all the rehearsals and the rehearsals were an awful lot of fun too and uh but the the other part about the plays was it was such an event, you know, and it was held in St. Hedwig's Hall because it was the largest. The acoustics were good, but you know, in those days, all the chairs were the old folding chairs and of course they had to be set up and the moving and you can hear that sound on the cement floor even to this day, you know, but then the hush, you know, as you say when the curtains are pulled, you know, and uh the stage is set and it all begins and there's a smell in the air too, you know, of I don't know, plants and lipstick and perfume and you know, all those exciting things, you know. So, yeah, uh, it was was a wonderful time. And no kidding, the tickets were sold. They were sold out for sure. Three performances probably weren't enough, but that probably was the exhaustion of the time.
2: So that play in which you and... uh... And Billy were the the leads was called Peg of Peg, my heart.
3: Yeah, Peg o my heart. Peg o my heart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if Billy were here, he'd have memories that'd roll at the table.
2: Well, most of my group remember Billy Gillette with great fondness and with some very particular circumstances that uh, were just quite. Lively, as I oh. recall them. Oh, the priest. Do you remember who produced the, that first play that you remember?
3: I'm going to say Father O'Brien. Hi. Yeah. But another one I kind of remember was a mystery one. And I always remember, you know, how is the mystery solved? And I, to this day, I remember the quote, "'Cleanliness is next to godliness.'" And as it happened, the clue to the mystery was in the bar of soap. And that's how this whole... But they were so interesting. They were so interesting.
2: So, Joanne, you are some years Karen's junior, but you were there. And you were in a particularly interesting place to watch the play and hear the surround of the play because you'd be... um, with your mother and your grandfather and your brother, you'd be part of the entertainment during the,
3: uh, intermissions. the acts yes. of the play, mm-hmm. the yeah. intermissions. Mm-hmm. So
2: with that in mind, what, uh, what of the several memories of these plays do you have? And are you able to tell us uh, this Sunday afternoon on public radio? You know, we, we're a family show.
4: <laughs> um, I just remember them being fun. A lot of laughter. It was always laughter. Um, and I guess the only other memory is that, you know, we were nervous. we were we were anxious and we had to perform. and um, so you know, you're sitting and you're watching, but your mind is thinking, you know, um, hopefully this dance goes well because we had a little sort of routine. My grandpa would go first. And then my mom, who always danced to the Irish washerwoman, she would perform. And then Basil and I came on, just the two of us, and we always danced to St. Anne's reel, And we had kind of a little duet type of performance. And as I said, he was quite judgmental of my performing arts. <laughs> so I think I was always just sitting there shaking in my boots, to be perfectly honest, so that I didn't mess up.
2: <laughs> and when you weren't performing, you got that monkey off your back, as it were, you'd be hanging around the stage, wouldn't you?
4: Yes, or we'd be sitting in the audience actually enjoying the rest of the play. But I think we missed a lot because, you know, when your mind is somewhere else and you're waiting for your turn to come up, um, you're not paying that much attention. But I do remember, you know, I remember uh, Bill Gillette for sure, Angela May, who uh, Mark mentioned, uh, stand out in my mind, um, and Bill was actually hilarious, so it was just a, a really, a really good time. Certainly, traveling to other parishes, I know I do remember the stage at the Brudenell Hall, which the Brudenell Hall is not very big, and uh, the steps up and out and down from the stage <laughs> were quite dangerous. Um, but I, I have one memory of an incredible storm in our weather here today. We just had a Snow squall that was unbelievable, and I thought how appropriate because uh, that's what we drove then. And driving on the back roads to Brudenell in a in a snow squall is no picnic, believe me.
2: You know, before I ask Mark, who has had quite a very active engagement with these plays, uh, we'll get to that in a moment. The one thing I just want to observe is, particularly when I was really young, it seemed natural that women would be in a play. You know, I mean, it just seemed to be. You know, if you were in separate school or public school, you know it would be the girls were always well ahead of the guys, who were just a bit slow and dopey. And and then you'd go to the play, St. Patrick's. Day play, and I was astonished at some of the men, including some of my male relatives, who'd be in these things. And I would never have imagined that you could, under any conditions, get them to get them to the stage. But um, I'm telling you, a couple of my Murray uncles, Dowdle Murray was certainly no, that wasn't a surprise, but his his uh, older brother, Danny, I remember seeing a couple of times, and uh, I just was surprised that Danny Murray would be in a play. You know, there were others, I'm trying to think of others, but it was, uh, it was quite interesting. And when I was looking over some lists here not too long ago, there was a cadre, there was a group of people that, uh, seemed to produce a disproportionate number of the uh, thespians. Uh, and that group contained a number of people that, for m- my money, was a bit of a surprise. But then again, what did I know? Mark Wormke knew a lot more because he both participated and directed uh, a little bit later than you, Karen, and and I were, uh, were around watching.
1: Mark? Thanks. Uh, yeah, I... I... Produced and directed one of the later plays in 1988, uh, but I have a couple of funny stories. Now, I didn't witness these things myself, uh, but they've been to- they were told to me by either my mother or some other reliable sources. Uh, so two funny stories, and one goes back to the late 1930s, maybe the early 1940s. And One of the actors uh, was a very popular young Irishman, and he showed up dr- drunk for one of the performances.
2: No. At a St. Patrick's Day event, someone under the influence? Hardly possible to believe.
1: And given his state, he was unable to complete, he had to ride a bicycle across the stage. Uh, but unfortunately, he wasn't unable to do that successfully. He ended up in a heap in the middle of the stage. And this was at St. Hedwig's Hall. And Father McNamara, who was the director, dashed, had the curtains pulled immediately, dashed to the center of the stage and announced an intermission. According to my mother, the cast was mortified because they thought Father uh, Mac was going to kill him, Uh, but he grabbed him by the collar in the seat of the pants, dragged him outside, upended him into a snowdrift, and left him there for 10 minutes, after which he was perfectly able to continue his role. And sober. And sober. Now, I don't think that was the only story of drunkenness. Uh, I did hear that another actor, um, again, arrived drunk, was unable to walk across the stage, was staggering a little too much, and so he had to, uh, someone ran home, got a wheelchair, brought it, and he delivered the rest of his lines that evening in a wheelchair.
2: I think I was actually there to witness that event, and it was quite an event. Uh, But I remember, I think Joan Kitts was uh, prompting for that play, and she just did a spectacular job, as did the entire cast, improvising as the circumstance would, would, would require. It's funny, Mark, as you say that because, you know, as I got older and then I would listen to my parents and their friends recalling, you know, the St. Patrick's Day events of yore. They were very positive about it all but there was rarely a telling of old tales around mm-hmm. St. Patrick's Day events where that very topic of uh, was would all the participants have passed uh, what we now know as a breathalyzer and... Uh, the, the event involving the wheel, wheelchair, I was very young, but I, it, was, it, it has remained with me uh, <laughs> uh, for the rest of my days. So how did you get involved being, direct, being a director of one of these?
1: Uh, I had finished university, and I took a year to live at home, and uh, I was talking to my cousin Martin Jakobuski and a few others. I was working at the, uh, the Berries Bay this week that was uh, owned and operated by Phil Conway. And so, and I worked with Elaine Murray, so we were talking about a variety of, you know, things that we might do in the community, and we decided to resurrect the uh, Irish play, the Irish concert, and it hadn't, I don't think there had been one since the late eight, late 1970s. So uh, we put something together, and it was actually, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun, and there were some familiar names, some folks, uh... Like Monica Conway was my co-director, um, Martin Jakobuski was in the show, as was Bill Gillette. Um Fran Madigan was in the show, Casey Coolis, who was a high school student at the time, Corinne Yanta, who was a high school student, Bernard Potvin, who was a high school student, and his mother, uh, who performed, Joan Marie Potvin performed, she was a, an escapee from a mental asylum. Um, do you remember the
2: name of the play?
1: I do. It was called "Here Come the Brides," and it involved, of course, it was a farce, so it involved mistaken identities. Uh, but Bernard Potvin had to dress up as a as a woman uh, because uh, one of the characters had to prove that he was married in order to inherit from his uncle Pat, uh, and so that became the sort of the uh, the crazy part of the play, but. <laughs> That's not the first time that there's been a drag show as part of the uh, as part of the St. Patrick's Day concert, back in the 1930s, uh, when the plays were still being held at St. Hedwig's Church, and in that year, uh, Monsignor Bernatsky was the director. Um, the young lady he had picked to be his lead backed out at the last minute, and he pressed Morris Rubin, who was the son of the Jewish shopkeeper, uh, into the role and. Provided a costume and he performed that, much to uh, the delight of the audience.
2: I think you've shown me a photograph of the uh, of, that, of that of that cast.
1: I do. I have a photograph. It comes from the Berries Bay Review, so it was from a a much later uh, sort of retrospective on local news. But uh, yes, there is a photograph of that.
2: Now you've studied and, and uh, taught English, as I understand it, in high school. I tried to. Yeah. And so, let me ask you this question, and it's one for for Karen and Joanne as well. You know, when you're young and you're watching this, someone, one of you said, it was lots of fun, and the play was intended to be lots of laughs. I mean, I don't remember too many really serious plots. You know, it seemed to be the leaven for winter. Uh, uh, But the caricature, just what, what did we, when we think back to what we directed, what we performed in, what Do you recall the the caricature, uh, particularly of the the, the typical Irishman?
1: I think that the more recent plays, like plays from the 1940s and maybe later than that, uh, we have a script, actually I brought it today, it's a script for Where's Grandma? And uh, my mother played the leading role, the grandmother, in that. Uh, Her future sister-in-law, Bernice O'Grady, played her granddaughter. Um, And... uh, few other characters or individuals from the community were in that and that was produced in 1948 but that was just a three-act farce that was modified by changing the names to Irish names to make it into an Irish play and that's what we did in 1988 when we did our play as well we took a, a comic play and changed the names and it became an Irish play but in the early days I think the plays were much more serious and maybe more dramatic um I have a clipping from the Egan Leader from their Reflections of a Se- Century uh, 75 Years Ago feature. And so this was a play that would have been performed about 1915 or 1916. I can date it uh, based on some of the people that are mentioned in it. Uh, but they performed a play called Kathleen Mavornine. And uh, it was a pretty sentimental play about some serious love issues between a landowner and a young girl and her her the man that she really loves. And uh, my grandmother, uh, Agatha Kitts, was the leading role. And uh, she was described as playing it as winsome and showed rare adaptability. Um, Mr. M. Quilty was Terence O'Moore, and he gained and sustained throughout the sympathies of the audience, while Mr. John Drohan was the squire and had a difficult part to play. But needless to say, John was equal to the occasion and was entitled to the particular credit given to him by club members for his able and capable interpretation of this character. The support given to the play by our genial Reeve, Mr. J. O'Manick, and our town clerk, Mr. Stephen Smith, was praiseworthy, while Mr. P. Dillon as black roadie was inimitable. The costumes were of the George IV period and gave a quaint setting. Mrs. Charles Murray sang Killarney and Dreaming of Aaron with rare sweetness and charm. Mr. Henry Chapesky sang several Irish favourites, and his feeling rendition of Kathleen Mavourneen gave the necessary musical accompaniment to the play.
2: And I think old-time Barry's Bay people would old time in my sense, would say, what, Henry Chepesky was singing an Irish ballad or an Irish love song?
1: That's right. He sang several Irish favourites, but in particular he sang Kathleen Mavornine. And my mother told me that he actually sang it to my grandmother because she played that role in the play. And Henry Chepesky was a little sweet on Agatha Kitts at the time, uh, but she only had eyes for Mark Billings, her childhood sweetheart. And she married him in one thousand nine hundred and twenty
2: one so let me just stop you there because you know when when you 're a kid, and Karen, you were talking about playing a female lead when you were fourteen or fifteen, you know the whole world of romance is just beginning to kind of dawn on you, um, but you have to think you know winters are long in the Ottawa Valley, and uh, by the time you get to March seventeenth you really are kind of anxious, I suspect, to release some you know, pent-up feelings, emotions, and, again, we're a family show, but one one would think, because I can remember being involved in high school with plays, and uh, it was like any collective effort. We've got people together, and on a particular kind of a... It might be a sport. It might be a building project. They were just young people or middle-aged people together in common cause to do something, produce something, and... Uh, you know, human nature sort of runs its course. And do any of you, Karen and uh, and uh, Joanne, have any memory of uh, watching, you know, romance's uh, bud in the fertile soil of the St. Patrick's uh, weeks of uh, particularly uh, preparation and um, all that? I see you no, nodding.
3: I can't say that, Sean. Um, but what I do want to comment on is... Uh, the number of people that would be involved. You know, we talked, there was the play, there was the singing, there was the dancing, there was the music. And then there were all the people in the background, the makeup people, the people who made the costumes, uh, the prompters, the sets, the sets mm. alone. You know, so it, it it was like it was a very exciting time. Christmas was over; the the preps for the Saint Patty's Day w- would begin because there was a lot of work to be done and materials to be procured. Um, et cetera, etc. Cetera. and I I come back to just one thing because the play was of course, the central, but without all of the adjunct of the talent on the sides, which exposed, as I say to you, the remarkable talents of people in this community, the dancing alone, like we used to remark, how can they do that dancing? while they can keep their body in such amazing form, but the legs are going like miles a minute, you know? So we used to just be astonished at how that was even possible. And I I was listening to Joanne say being nervous, and I can appreciate that. You know, the best of performers are always nervous before they hit the stage. But we would just be enthralled with that, you know. And then the music, the singing, the crooning, the, the, the fiddles, the piano. It was a fantastic overall production that involved many, many people, which is why the community supported it so much.
2: Well, you make a very good point, so I want to ask Joanne... Um... Picking up on Karen's point, I can remember watching the Billings clan weave their step-dancing magic. <laughs> I would be 12, 13, playing a lot of hockey. Literally, my legs would be sore. I would just be, I'd be sitting there. I'd, I'd think, oh my God, how can anybody do that? Because when you skate that much, you feel like your legs are going to fall off. And then I'd look up and I'd see, well, there's young Joanne and uh, Basil, my age. And, and then there's Bernice. And then there's her father. How old was your grandfather, Joe Grady, when he was doing that? He, well into his
4: 70s, right? Well into his 60s, for sure. Um, and he was a heavy smoker, so I'm really not quite sure how he managed as well as he did. My mom loved to dance, and she continued to dance long after the concerts uh, ended. Um, whenever we had a celebration at the hotel she would always be asked to give us a step Bernice and uh, she would love to do that Um, I think as Karen said you know when Christmas was over and the new year started it was it was a parish responsibility it was a job so you were expected to be ready Uh, And the practicing started. And, I mean, that's what step dancing is, is learning new steps, coordinating the steps, practicing your little routine. We practiced probably three, four nights a week in our basement for at least an hour or two. Um, So it wasn't something that just happened. Um, And I think that's uh, evidence that, you know, at that time, the parish was such a large part of community celebration, um, and I, that's why people looked forward to it as much, not just our parish, but um, all the surrounding parishes. It was, uh, it was a big event, and you're right, at the right time of year, because it was cold and dark, and uh, people looked forward to it, it as almost a sign of spring, that spring was coming, and there was some life left in the community other than in the hockey rink. <laughs>
1: I think that one thing we're missing uh, a little bit is that St. Patrick's Day falls in Lent, And my mother always said that St. Patrick's Day wasn't inland. Right, but I think that everybody needed a little break from the uh, all the uh, you know the things that they'd given up.
2: The rigors of the the rigors discipline. of the lantern season.
1: <laughs> but just to follow on what both Karen and Joanne said, when I produced that uh, concert in 1988, I realized that there was a huge amount of work, and so we had people from the community. I remember Kristen Marchand was the musical coordinator, and she had you know eight or ten acts Um, some older folks who performed before like uh, Neil Conway uh, but young people like the the Corrigan kids or folks from the school um, some the Buster Brown step dancers would come Mm -hmm. so she coordinated that but we had Jill Billings and and Camille Conway doing uh, makeup we had uh, Pat Flynn and some others building sets uh, Jimmy Conway taking tickets at the door, uh, you know. So we had a a, a large group. We had uh, F- Lorraine Finn, I think, and uh, Esther Yantha decorated the hall. We had a group that I think my mother was involved in that and maybe Lois Kelly taking care of refreshments. And so, you know, there was always, uh, there was a big team behind the project.
2: Well, you make a very good point, and it builds on a point you made earlier and that Karen actually began with some time ago and that is when you re- read that uh, 1915
1: I would say it's cast. between 15 and 17 um,
2: yeah. just pull that back up and just read some of those names again because the point I want to make is that uh, you know there would be a tendency to think in a community where there were some divides clearly between uh, you know various parts of the community uh, and you would think well the St. Patrick's party is going to be mostly, or the or whatever the tea or the, but particularly the play. Well, that will be mostly the Irish, you know. There's where there's enough to actually get the thing launched. But give us some of those names again. I'm Henry Chupeski in, well, in just, 1915 was a was a major community leader. Mm-hmm. Um, he, the he, first he was the first reeve on his way to playing a really important uh, role in this community, and uh, very much from the, the, the Polish. Canadian
1: community here? Well, when we look at the names, uh, Agatha Kitts, M. Quilty, uh, John Drohan, so that might be JT Drohan, yeah. mm-hmm. um, Mr. J. Mannick was the town clerk at the time, Mr. Stephen Smith, uh, oh, sorry, the Reeve at the time was John Man- Mr. O'Manick, and the town clerk was Stephen Smith. Now, the Smiths left here in 1918, so this had to be prior to that. And Karen
2: Yacoboski's grandfather bought the business.
1: Patrick Dillon was involved, Mrs. Charles Murray uh, sang, uh, Henry Chapesky sang, and Mr. John Devine and Mr. W. Kerwin uh, played the violin, played the fiddle.
2: But if you had, for example, an Irish play in 1915-16, an Irish play with uh, John Manick, uh and Henry Chapesky, you had two of the most prominent community leaders who were part of the Polish community, and uh, you know, I was struck by some of the conversation we were having earlier, that it was um, everybody, that's my memory, is that uh, yes, there might be an Irish emphasis, but there were, it was pretty ecumenical. Um, You know, the other thing Mark just mentioned, uh, that that Lent, and of course Lent would be, be, I I have, yeah, that that brings back a memory because there was the Lenten discipline Mm -hmm. on a variety of, you know, Thou shalt give up during Lent, and some of that which was supposed to be forbidden was particularly helpful to get through a night on the stage, and I'll leave it at that. But, um, but the other thing that, that was going on at that point was, uh, you know, again, if you're a young guy, um, in that period, certainly in my days, like the late 50s, uh, from about 1958 to 67 was, March was the hockey showdown, usually between Eganville and Barry's Bay, and as my my brother calls it, the Old Grey Lady, the arena that was uh, where the Value Mart is in Barry's Bay today. And I'm telling you, that was a serious community undertaking, that that arena would be packed, um, and it was serious business. And I can remember as a young person, um, you know, having to serve mass, and if it was an early Easter, you know, that really kind of um, got to be a problem because you would be constrained in getting to the semifinals between Killaloo and Barry's Bay in the old George Cup uh, South Renfrew Senior Hockey League. Uh, you had church to worry about, and then into that you put, um, you know, the play. That, as you said of your your late mother which was so true she must she was in my memory she had to have been the most efficient human being alive the things she she could do but for other people who are trying to you know raise kids and go to work and get to church and get to the hockey game because those awful people from Eganville were coming up here and and uh, you know you had to be there to support the local boys it was uh, that March season those few weeks of March were very very busy socially.
3: Very exciting times, you know, very exciting they were, you know, as a young person um, uh, motivating and I agree with you, you know, you'd go to the arena, it, the, it was to the rafters and the vying, the cheering, the booing the hot chocolate being spilt on you maybe <laughs> you know, probably other things as well, but we never told our parents about that But, yeah, they were, you know, we had such a vibrant community here. Well, that's... We really, really
2: did. You know, that's such a good point. And, again, everyone probably says that of their their home community. But, you know, we all grew up and went away to university. And uh, I'm looking around the table. I know Joanne spent much of her professional career uh, after the University of Toronto uh, in the fast-growing city of Brampton. Um, I went off to, Pen- well, to Toronto, largely, for a lot of years. Um, Mark went off to become a teacher and taught mostly in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. Um, Karen, you went off to St. Pat's and
3: then to... Uh, I was 18 years in Montreal. Montreal. I started out in Ottawa after St. Pat's and then, uh, yeah, 18 years in Montreal, then came to Ottawa for about 21 mm-hmm. years. and. Yeah.
2: Because the, the point that that was made here, I think is, I think it's objectively true. I mean, you're always going to be mostly a partisan of your own home community. But when I think of it now, we really had. I can only speak from my crowd growing up in the '50s and '60s. What what what, what I think of is a particularly rich community experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, because into that, thanks to the work of people like your late father Paul Yakubusky, um we had a new regional public high school drop into this world in 1967 which just added another layer of possibility and engagement but uh, I had a, a young fellow from Barry's Bay who, a uh, very bright fellow, and he went off to the University of Toronto and when I was at Queen's Park I hired him and, uh, and we were talking one day about um, you know, growing up in Barry's Bay, and we were comparing notes. And I said to him one day, uh, you know, how was that? He said, well, it was actually really quite, quite enjoyable. And he said, much more enjoyable than the summer I had to spend in Kanata, which I thought was just a suburban wasteland. They might have 10 times the population, 50 times the population, there just didn't seem to be anything to do other than go to the to the mall. And I never forgot that, because when you're here, you know, you're always thinking, well, it's a very small place, and really, you know, uh, I'm always struck by Arthur Maloney's famous comment, important people come from small places, and I come from Eganville. That out of the mouth of one
0: of Canada's greatest ever lawyers. Now that's getting interesting. Still, time for a short break, so you can make a spot of Irish breakfast tea Dust off the old green felt shamrock or whistle up a tune or two from those old Celtic classics before we get back to hearing more shenanigans about how St. Patrick's Day was celebrated in the upper Madawaska Valley back in the middle of the 20th century. But don't be long. We've been told there might even be an extra helping of Irish cream pie that used to be made for the occasion using the secret recipe known only to the good folks at Billings Balmoral Hotel and made from only the best Jameson whiskey. So hurry right back and don't get caught tap dancing or misbehaving by the fridge for too long.